Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, I'm really looking forward to today's show because um, it is going to be a lively discussion with a colleague. Today's show is called Two Shrinks uh, Analyze Society and Psychiatry. So, how's that for, <laughs> for, uh, for a preview of fun? Um, my guest is Dr. Srini Pillay. He, is, he has been called uh, a renaissance man of psychiatry. He's an author, a coach, a brain researcher, a musician, a provocateur, a poet, a, uh, the CEO and founder of Neuro Business Group, um, and an assistant professor of Harvard Medical School. Uh, and his book, his latest book, is called Tinkle, Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try. Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try. That sounds like a new kid's game, actually. Um, well, uh, Dr. Pillay, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Lovely to be with you, Carol. I thought we would start with, um, you know, I, I love to hear about, for a, well, I love to hear about anybody's journey from, that's kind of how I start off each show, whatever, whatever field the person is in. Uh, whatever book they've written and so on, I always like to hear, you know, as a psychiatrist would, right? Um, sure. What got them to that point? What was their, you know, what was their childhood like? What was, how did they, uh, how did they end up where they are today? And, um, and so, like, for example, I talk about, um, not very often, but if somebody asks why I became a psychiatrist, I, I talk about how I was an only child, and because I didn't, you know, know how little people, little children, other little children worked, um, when I went to kindergarten, it was a big shock. And I was started very quickly um, trying to analyze the people around me so they would like me and I would fit in. And, you know, I would ha- wanted to try to figure out what are they thinking? Why are they doing what they're doing and what's going on? And then, of course, at eight years old, I re- read a book about the first American woman physician uh, Elizabeth Blackwell, and so I decided I wanted to be a doctor, and then when I was a teenager, I read Freud's Interpretation of Dreams, and that, of course, I totally connected to, and that set me on my journey, my path to becoming a psychiatrist, especially a psychoanalytically oriented psychiatrist. So, what is, um, what, what is your, what was your path? Well, I'll just say as a caveat that I, you know, I'm always suspicious about my own stories because I feel like I can quite linearly join the dots, but the, the actual causes of anything, I think I generally assume are not known to me. And if I had to speak the truth, I would say I'm still discovering to a certain extent why I chose to be a psychiatrist. But uh-huh. to give you a you know, a sense of, of some of the things that I think were part of my path. I was um, I was born in South Africa, fourth generation South African, uh, during apartheid. So there were a lot of conflicts, a lot of restrictions, a lot of excitement, a lot of vicariousness um, in the sense that, you know, I was of Indian descent, uh, couldn't use um, the white pool. 
Uh, I remember writing um, for the American Psychoanalytic for the American Psychoanalytic Association when asked about my experience in South Africa. Um, I, I actually wrote about the feeling of going past a white pool, having a droplet of water sort of land in my hand, and then feeling so excited and almost. Uh, sort of stimulated by it because of the vicariousness of that experience. So I, uh-huh. I think, the, it, you know, it was a really rich environment where there was a lot of stimulus. I grew up with a very loving family um, where the curiosity was really encouraged. I, um, you know, from a young age, had been on the stage, uh, was part of you know, the Shakespearean uh, movies, trained in music. Uh, so I, I really loved math and physics equally. So when I uh, graduated from medical school in South Africa, when I graduated from high school in South Africa, you have the option of going directly to medical school. In fact, that's more standard. I realized that I, I really didn't want to go through life without knowing the human body because I, I feel like I had an experience of the human body uh, you know, through biology, but I also had it through provocative writers like D.H. Lawrence. And I felt like I just wanted to know more about what this body was and how it operated. Um, and I knew that I wanted a lot of this to come together. In fact, I, I asked my father, because uh, my music teachers had called him to school and said, listen, this guy likes everything, and it's so typical for someone who's doing well at something to go into medicine. Um, there are not a, people of his extract, not a lot of people who are doing music. I think you should encourage him to be a musician. Mm. And my father, I think very wisely said, I don't want to be responsible for the rest of your life, so you choose what you want to do. Mm. Um, and I said, well, why are you pretending like you don't want me to be a doctor? It's obvious you do. Mm. And he said, well, I'm not pretending. You, you asked me what you should do. I don't know what you should do. If you're asking me for a preference, I think you'd have a better career path as a doctor and you could do music later. Mm-hmm. Well, suffice it to say, when I went to medical school, I had a similar experience where I really loved all of this stuff. I loved surgery as much as I loved psychiatry and internal medicine. Um, and and I think at the end of medical school, sort of just felt like I didn't really know what I want to, wanted to do. But psychiatry, at some level, was the least touched by what I thought were generally silly algorithms. Uh, well, generally, I'm sorry, of, the least touched by what? By silly algorithms. So you know, at that point, uh-huh. people were saying things, were thinking in very automatic ways. Uh-huh. Chest pain, follow the chest pain protocol. Uh, Uh And I felt like in psychiatry it was untouched and there was a chance for me to discover some of these these, uh, systems. And I had a genuine curiosity about human nature. And if I think about it retrospectively, I think about consciousness in general. Uh, Because I I wasn't really convinced that, um, that what we call the human mind was necessarily constrained by the skull. So I had, you know, I had a lot of esoteric questions, a lot of existential questions, and I think that led me into psychiatry. But because I also really had a, a, a profound sort of appreciation for what biology offered as a metaphor for understanding, um, I, that was a, a large uh, sort of part of what I did as well. So I very serendipitously, and we can go into the story if you'd like at some point, but I serendipitously called Harvard from a dorm room um, in South Africa and asked to speak to the head of Harvard and one thing <laughs> led to another and the next thing I knew I I was here and that was uh, kind of a well, remarkable that's experience. pretty interesting wait a second <laughs> did they did they actually put you through um, you know I'm sure they put you through to one person who then would have had to put you through to three more people but I mean is that what happened that they like that they you yeah. know somebody's calling from South Africa oh, my god why are they asking for the head of Harvard 
Well, I, well I'll tell you the story then. You know, uh, so when I, in, during my exam, uh, my final exam in medical school, uh, there's a tradition in South Africa to invite an external examiner, and my examiner was from NYU. And I had done particularly well at that exam, and he said at the end, you know, you should be at Harvard. I take you into NYU in a heartbeat, but I think you should be at Harvard. And I had never even really known anything about Harvard at the time. But a year later, I moved from Durban to Cape Town in South Africa, did a fellowship in neurochemistry. And while I was there, I just suddenly realized that all my friends were getting nervous and wanting to leave the country. And I thought, well, you know, I heard of Harvard. Why don't I give them a call? And I thought, well, how do you get through to them? I said, I don't know anybody at Harvard. So why don't I just find a main number and say I want to speak to the head? That mm-hmm. way I can just see if they'd, be, if they'd even be interested. Mm-hmm. So I, I got through to the main campus. They thought I was a bit strange. They sort of asked, you know, what department do you want? I eventually got through to the medical school. They asked me, you know, they said there were a lot of departments there. They asked me what I wanted, and I said, well, how about the Department of Psychiatry? And on that day, Joe Coyle was in the op, was in his office at the hospital at which I eventually trained, which is McLean Hospital, and he happened to pick up his phone. His secretary was away from the desk. He didn't usually do that. And I said, hi, my name is Srini Pillay. I'm sitting in a dorm room in South Africa thinking, boy, wouldn't it be great to be at Harvard? And so <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to just get straight through to the head and find out, like, how do you do this and see if I'm qualified and if I can come. Mm-hmm. And he told me later he thought I was a little crazy for asking. Mm-hmm. He said, yeah, you, know, you and everybody else. And said, but he said he did the decent thing and said, well, why don't you send me your CV and send me a letter of interest and let's see what, what we can do. Uh-huh. And so... Uh, a few weeks later, I got a call from Jonathan Cole, who is um, really widely regarded as the father of psychopharmacology. He did an interview over the telephone, and then a week later, I got a FedEx envelope saying, congratulations, welcome to Harvard. Now, that was welcome to the residency program? Is that what you're talking about? No. So what I did was I did a psychopharmacology fellowship, uh, and then I did a fellowship in structural brain imaging, and after that applied to the residency. Um, and even then, I was met, you know, I, I, just to give you some context for that time, um, I was the second um, resident from another country, so the second foreign resident ever to be at McLean, and the second person of Indian descent. So it was not mm. common uh, at mm. the time. Mm-hmm. So, I, so it, it was an interesting experience to sort of go there, do the research, uh, get an experience of what was going on, and I... I could see that I, I really liked what was happening here, so I applied to residencies throughout the country, but got into the program I wanted to get into. So I, you know, it's a, and I, when I got here, I kept my interests alive. I entered poetry competitions and entered a bunch of other things because I felt like, you know, my South African CV was was good enough to be able to to prove that I had a history in South Africa, but I wanted to build a history here so people could see that it was translatable. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I often say to people, you know, I, I, I think the, the lesson there is that there are a lot of people whose CVs would probably qualify to be looked at and to even get into Harvard, but not everybody would be crazy enough to say, to call. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, you know, uh, just to, it's interesting that after the story about um, how, as an Indian, you weren't allowed in the white pool, um, it's interesting that you would have had the, what, self-esteem, confidence to, uh, or maybe you just felt like there was nothing, nothing left to lose, you know, um, to call a, a good school. Do you know what I mean? 
Yes. Like, no, like why do. wouldn't you, the fact is you didn't feel that that would have been like the white pool? No, because I, I think, and that's why I said that about my family. I think to a certain extent, my family did provide a very remarkable kind of insulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, when I was in South Africa um, and was sort of going through the motions of different things in high school, I was also part of a group of people, because I had done well, um, I was sort of allowed to enter the, the English Olympiad, which, in, like, in which I was like the first person of Indian descent to be placed in this advanced high school exam, and the same thing with the math Olympiad. And so I, I had uh-huh. had experience interacting with other races in South Africa, probably more than my brother did when he was, you know, he was five years before me. Mm. Um, but I think to your point about, like, where does the self-esteem come from? Um, I don't know if it's self-esteem or taking a chance or some kind of, you know, I mean, if things are so absurd here, is that really a risk? Because, um, you know, how much worse could it be? So mm-hmm. I, I, so I, I would say, though, that in general, I did have an exploratory and somewhat upbeat nature. And, and I think that, that that helped me. And I, I will say I told nobody about it until that it eventually happened. Because mm, mm-hmm, uh, I, mm-hmm. I thought people would say, you know, don't be ridiculous. Like, that's not the way you get into a program. That's not the way you get into anything. Yes, um, yes. Yes, so that I, helps I, too because, because, you know, because all the naysayers, right? Oh, you'll never do that, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, it's, it's always, it is intriguing, isn't it? That, I, I mean, I find it through my own practice sometimes that there isn't a correlation between, I sometimes get, you know, uh, I, I would get people just entering college who came from sort of amazingly supportive families who would just be falling apart. I would have people coming from, very, from a very distraught background, uh, doing incredibly well at life. So I think for some people... And I think one of the variables that matters is being brought up with a growth mindset that things could always be better. Yeah. And, and I think certainly studies have shown that if you have that attitude, you, you probably will seek out the betterness. And it's, in my opinion, that's one of the variables that impacts where we end up in life. Yes, yes. Not that absolutely. I've ended up anywhere. Absolutely. So... Um, so it's interesting that you started off in these fellowships that were sort of more scientific typically based than than therapy based and um yep. and now and take us from there so then you did your residency i mean you've been in a number of aspects of psychiatry i mean i i think as i as i have mentioned before um the the kind of brain mapping and so on. Well, tell us about it, and then I'll tell you. I, I am yeah. so so much more interested in the psychological, the the, the psychodynamic um, aspects of psychiatry, uh, and and I, you know, and not the not as much the biochemical or bio or psychopharmacological, pharma, psychopharmacological, um, right. and you seem to have. Um, it's interesting that you started out in that direction and then you seem to be incorporating a number of things together. Um, so how, how did you get from these, from these research uh, fellowships to other aspects of psychiatry? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think when I entered my residency, it was, it was blatant within a short period of time that human nature was incredibly complex and, and very much unknown and that a lot of working with people would involve 
a mutual exploration or, or accompanying people on their journeys of self-discovery and that a lot of what we had discovered through brain imaging and through neurochemistry and through psychopharmacology, you know, offered a certain kind of insight, but that it was not the be-all and end-all of things. So when I graduated, people, um, you know, had thought I was going to just do research. And I said, you know, I, I don't want to just do research. I want to have a clinical job as well. And so I ended up running the anxiety disorder service um, at McLean Hospital at the same time that I directed the panic disorders research program uh, in the brain imaging center. And so I, 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 did, I studied brain blood flow, fMRI, for 17 years in the lab, and at the same time uh, continued my clinical practice. And for me, what that did was it showed me ways in which the brain science could be incorporated into discussions in the room. It also showed me ways in which the brain science failed to explain the complexity of human nature. It showed me ways in which psychodynamic theories were incredibly powerful and that learning more and more about them would be uh, to my advantage as a clinician. And it also showed me that there were ways in which psychodynamic uh, sort of constructs were not acceptable to all people and that, and that at some level, learning how to in- integrate this was important. And I, I do think I lost something in the process. You know, I think there are people who've done much more research than I have. There are people who've concentrated on their clinical practices. I, I think the advantage for me is that I, I put myself in a position to be able to integrate these, and I offer an integrative perspective in my practices. Mm-hmm. But as you sort of alluded to early on, I, I still have a lot of different um, interests. You know, I, I work in biotechnology with investment companies across cancer, heart disease, and stroke, uh, helping them analyze mechanisms of actions of different drugs to see if they might make it to approval. Um, I, I also uh, have three technology startups, uh, which, are, uh, which are related to all of these things. So I, I can tell you more about this after the break. Uh-huh. Yes. Okay. Uh, we, and we will do that. Uh, my guest um, today is Dr. Srini Pillay, uh, a psychiatrist. We're talking today, the topic of the, uh, or the theme of the show today is Two Shrinks, Analyze Society and Psychiatry. So we will be talking more about that when we come back. Uh, also, I want to ask uh, Dr. Pillay about his book, Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. 
And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. The show today is called Two Shrinks Analyze Society and Psychiatry, and the other shrink is Dr. Srini Pillay. And um, before the break, uh, I was saying we were going to talk about his new book, which is called Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try, a very counterintuitive book, so tell us about it. Sure. The, the, the book is, is Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try, Unlock the Power of the Unfocused Mind. And I, I wrote the book because I, I guess in part I was personally stimulated by the fact that I feel like I've really benefited from going deeply into subjects but also making uh, sort of connections across them. Um, and so I, I felt sort of in a position to be able to, to say to people that I, I've often noticed that when people have an additional interest or if they take their minds off of constant focus in the day, um, they're really able to help themselves. So at a, at a superficial level, um, I think some of, even though I, I believe that there's a real place for focus in one's life, I think if you just focus, focus, focus the entire day, you end up fatigued. And in fact, that is one of the disadvantages of focus. It fatigues the brain and it makes it very hard to feel compassion for anyone else. And studies have shown that if you feed someone glucose after intense focusing, they start to care again. But mm. in addition to that, focus is also problematic because uh, it means that you don't pay attention to what's on the periphery. You know, you could be focusing on your career and neglecting your personal life. It, it also, if you proceed with your nose to the grindstone, you, you don't really notice what's coming ahead. You know, is a robot going to take over my job or not? And, mm-hmm. and, and focusing in of itself uh, doesn't allow you to make connections. So, for example, Gillette uh, Company had a, um, they had a toothbrush division and a battery division and an appliance division, but they were not first to market because each division worked in its own compartment mm. or silo. So they were not able to, um, to, to uh, go first to market with the, with the, with the battery-powered toothbrush. But, mm. but perhaps the, the reason I was most interested in unfocus is that unfocus the unfocused circuit, also called the default mode network, uh, is one that overlaps with the self circuits in the brain. And so, um, you know, a lot of us go around the world describing ourselves in, like, our LinkedIn profiles. You know, I'm this, I'm that, I did this, I did that. Right. But as you know, as a psychiatrist, um, you know, the, com- the complexity of who we are is often lost if we don't pay attention to 
you know, metaphorically, if we don't invite spoons to the table to pick up the delicious melange of flavors of our identity, like the scent of your grandmother, or if we don't invite these chopsticks to the table to make connections across the brain, or this toothpick to dig in the nooks and crannies, you know, as you might in your office or on the psychoanalytic couch where memories begin to surface, a focused mind doesn't really allow for subtleties to emerge mm-hmm. so that vital puzzle pieces of your life can come together. So I, mm-hmm. I wanted to help people uh, understand some very practical ways in which they could begin to develop unfocus in their lives to acknowledge their complexity and access their ingenuity and probably add more meaning to their life narratives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, and presumably you have uh, seen your own patients or other people adopt some of these things and, and make changes? I have. You know, I, I think, you know, certainly as a therapist, um, you know, one of the techniques, for example, is reverie, the, the idea of sort of sitting in the same room as someone and then, you know, not necessarily focusing. You know, there's this, there's this common, I think, misunderstanding that if you say what your goal is and you focus on the goal and then you uh, identify five steps to your goal, that somehow you're going to reach it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think human nature is so much more complex than that. And so one technique where you let your mind sort of, you know, float into the room and you, you start to tell your own story, but I think eventually... Uh, both people realize that a lot of the stories in the room are co-constructed, that my story is informed by the patient, the patient's story is informed by my own. And as these stories become more complex, they, ev- they evoke more complex parts of ourselves. And for the patients, I think they actually get to, ex- they, they get to feel an aha moment from time to time that gives them a certain sense of motivation because there's a slightly greater degree of coherence or meaning in their lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, it's um, it is true that uh, the 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 common thing that people are told is just you know f- figure out a goal and yes, like you said, five steps or however many steps um, to get there, and then you just keep your nose to the grindstone and you don't let yourself get distracted by other things. But it is really true that. Um, and sometimes that can be a very narrow, very um, colorless kind of way of going about things, and you, you miss you miss maybe there are other maybe there are better ways to get to the goal, but they, but you're looking at your five steps and you miss all these other things. Yeah, I, I feel like that. You know, that for me, you know, talking about societal issues, I think one of my pet peeves is this whole you know, brain hack thing. Like, you know, do these five things to hack your brain, three things to hack your psychology. It mm-hmm. sort of, you know, it makes of a very complex thing, the human condition, some kind of mechanistic thing, which I, I don't think it is. And I, I think if we live lives that appear to be so driven by uh, these oversimplifications, you know, you, you actually miss out on, on a lot of amazing things uh, about being alive. So yes. I... I you know, in some ways, I, I often feel forced by media outlets to do the three things. You know, people, in fact, last week I sort of acted out a little in my response back because they said, well, can you give us, I, I, one of my uh, sort of recommendations was to reflect and contemplate, and they said, can you make this an action? Mm. And I said, well, what's wrong with reflecting and contemplating? Yeah. 
And, and they were like, no, no, that, that's just not concrete enough. So I literally had to say, keep a diary so you can make a note. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. You know, but I, I don't necessarily feel like you need to keep a diary to make a note. I, I think this reflecting and, and acting is perfectly fine. And I, you know, there's a, there's a, a, a venture capitalist. Someone has, I heard about a, a man who decided that he, he has a large sum of money and he wants to give it away uh, to people who are specifically not directed toward uh, practical projects. Like he, mm. he doesn't want, he wants to encourage thinking in the world because he feels like we've stopped thinking and there's too much acting. Uh-huh. And, that the, and that acting has a kind of superficiality, which, which I think uh, reduces what human nature is. And I, I just respect that attitude a lot because I think a balance of both or a dynamic relationship between both is I think often leads people to a much more satisfying life than just pretending that all meaning comes from action when you know there's a lot more to life than that. Yes. Well, let's talk about some of the things that are going on in our crazy world. Um, I would assume that I mean I I know when I well, the first thing I do uh, one of the first things I do when I wake up in the morning is go to Google and Google the news. And um, I, to see what's been going on in the world while, since the last time I looked. And some of the things, you know, it has just gotten more. Uh, it's like if you, if you put this in a play, um, these, some of the things that are happening in the news, you, it, they wouldn't have been believable. I mean, it would have been somebody wouldn't have, uh, or in a movie, you know, it wouldn't have been um, the audience wouldn't think that this was uh, this was the truth. You know, how could oh, this is preposterous, and um, and yet these things are happening every day. There is more craziness than the day before. So, like I was just uh, in in preparation for our uh, chat today. <laughs> I um, I just looked at some of the things I've actually been doing some media interviews on these things, um, and but you know now there are a whole bunch that are together. In particular, I'm talking about um, we had you know starting starting Valentine's Day we had the Parkland school shooting, Nicholas Cruz. Then just the other day we had uh, the Waffle House shooter, Travis Reinking. Now today we have uh, well starting last yesterday, but. Uh, there's more information about him today. The man, Alex Manassian, the Toronto um, possible terrorist or possible just uh, uh, someone with mental illness. I mean, actually, each of these people have some kind of mental illness, and the psychiatry um, field has totally failed them. And I find that as a psychiatrist, I mean, not only is it that the world is getting crazier in so many different fronts, of course, politically, you know, the, the tension is worse than ever, and um, there's so many things going on around the world, but, but in particular, I get very disturbed by these kinds of examples of people, Nicholas Cruz, Travis Reinking, and Alec uh, Manassian, who are mentally ill, should have been given proper psychiatric treatment along the way. They did have um, uh, brushes with psychiatry. They did have some kind of contact with psychiatry, and yet uh, psychiatry failed them. Yeah. I'm, you know, I think, so I think a couple of comments there. I, uh, so I, I think the first thing I'd want to say is 
there are a lot of people who would argue that the world is actually less violent than it used to be. So Steven Pinker, I think, has, in his latest book, um, sort of produced an argument to that effect. I, I, I definitely don't align with him on um, sort of a, a lot of his conceptualizations of the universe, but he does point out that if you actually look at this violence, that it's different. So, but that said, I think it's absolutely true that that these other events are drawn to our attention, and there's something about it that just feels like it's potentially preventable, um, maybe after the fact, but it, it raises the question of, well, what quality of care has been provided? Because if you look at traditional mainstream um, psychiatric quality of care, you know, it, what is that? Is that an initial evaluation of 45 minutes followed by monthly visits, 15 minutes to up and down your medication? You know, to, to increase or decrease your medication, or is it, um, is it, uh, you know, actually getting to try to understand and form a relationship with someone so that you have a greater self-awareness? Um, you know, I, I think the question about, um, I think that's implicit in your in your recounting that is why why are these things happening, um, and and can we do anything different uh, differently to actually address this and I think it's hard to say in each case whether they're happening for the same reason, but if I had to hypothesize, I think I would say that these are people who appear to be restless and angry, and they appear to be disconnected from the consequences of their acts at the time of of committing them, um, or they appear to be connected and not care. And so you would ask, well, what are the things that make people not care? Um, hard to know precisely, but I think important to reflect on the fact that at uh, at workplaces worldwide for the last few years, globally, uh, that the eight th- only thirteen percent of people are engaged in their work. So eighty-seven percent of people are not engaged in their work. Uh, then to this point of over-focusing or being tired by constant distraction, digital demands, um, constant change in the world. Uh, I think I think it's not hard to hypothesize that at least for a segment of people, that change is too much, and and that at some level, I don't think we're going to be able to stop this change. But I do think we have to reflect on how we want to manage ourselves so it, all this change doesn't drive all of us batty. So I think that at a at a fundamental level, uh, to the extent that there are vulnerabilities that each of these people have, and I, I'm you know it's hard to argue that they would not have vulnerabilities. Uh, taking care of them in meaningful ways matters. The problem is that the world has become so data-driven that that quantity uh, has superseded quality. So it's mm-hmm. like, you know, how many fewer depressive symptoms than you have do you have as opposed to what's the quality of your relationship with yourself? Um, and I think that that question really highlights um, probably one of the reasons that you're interested in the psychoanalytic work because you get a chance to interact with quality of life and the real complexity of human nature uh, rather than just saying you've got three fewer symptoms this week, you must be fine. Well, and you were talking, you mentioned before about how, and this is kind of the crux of uh, what I'm trying to get at, and I don't know if it um, bothers you as much as it bothers me, but in each of these cases, um, and we can we can talk about each one individually if you like, but the the common thing 
is that um, they did not get the appropriate treatment. And yes, you know what you were saying, 45 minutes, like the typical kind of thing, a 45-minute evaluation and um, a med visit for 15 minutes or so every month or two months or three months. I mean, that is what psychiatry has developed into. And um, nobody is getting cured uh, in that way. I mean, not everybody is becoming a mass murderer, but, um, but certainly people are, to the extent that people see psychiatrists and see somebody else for therapy, uh, if they fall through the cracks because the therapist, let's say the psychologist or social worker or marriage and family therapist, doesn't talk to the psychiatrist or the psychiatrist doesn't talk to them. Everybody's rushing around and really, um, this, this connection is totally being missed. And um, it is not, you know, if, if I, if, if when I went to, um, when I decided to be a psychiatrist and I went to residency, uh, if I knew at that point that, you know, years down the line, it was psychiatrists were going to become pill pushers, I wouldn't have become a psychiatrist to begin with. And, and these days, I don't. I don't see any patients who won't come to me for therapy once a week, and if they need medicine, I also give them medicine. But this whole thing of, of, of psychiatrists giving people prescriptions and sending them out the door and to see them in a month or two, um, it just doesn't cure anything. And, and so these cases, these, you know, they come to, they become the headlines, point out the deficiencies in psychiatry. It used to be that any of these people or anybody coming to a psychiatrist would be um, getting much more, would be getting weekly, you know, 45 to 50-minute sessions. And if they needed medicine, they'd get that. And if they didn't, they didn't. But, I mean, they would be getting an intensive kind of treatment, not this 45 minutes in an emergency room and then these, you know, fly-by-night kind of later appointments. Oh, I'm hearing, hearing the music, so I guess we need to go. But we will hear Dr. Pillay's response to all of this when we come back. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com 
Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with Dr. Srini Pillay today. And the show is called Two Shrinks, Analyze Society and Psychiatry. And that's what we've been doing. And before the break, I was talking about uh, some of the failures of psychiatry and using some of the headlines as to exemplify that. Um, Last night I was on a news show talking about how Nicholas Cruz, the Parkland school shooter, and Travis Reinking, the Waffle House shooter, were similar in that uh, they both had mental illness and they both had brushes, I'll call them, with uh, psychiatry, and neither one of them were hospitalized against their will nor treated sufficiently uh, to prevent their ultimate mass shooting, mass killing. And, um, you know, um, Dr. Pillay, it, I, I feel so, uh, it makes me so angry and disappointed in um, my colleagues, you accepted, of course. <laughs> but, you know, it just, the, the idea, I mean, some of this, uh, mostly it has come about because of money. Money is at the root of this. Um, because certainly all the people who I know who went into were at NYU Bellevue, where I trained, um, and who went, were, you know, dedicated, became dedicated psychiatrists, uh, they were not thinking at the time that they would practice in this kind of a way as, as psychiatrists practice today. And so, you know, the, uh, it started with insurance companies not wanting to pay psychiatrists to do therapy when they could pay a psychologist or social worker or MFCC to do it and pay a lot less. And what makes me angry is how my fellow psychiatrists, not all, but some of, many of my fellow psychiatrists have just uh, succumbed, have just surrendered to, uh, to this, and, and that's how it came about that they do med visits, you know, one after the other after the other. I mean, you know, you see some of these job descriptions where you're supposed to see 12 to 18 patients in a day. I mean, obviously, you're not seeing them for very long or you couldn't do that. Um, and it's just, so it makes me really angry and disappointed and, and, and at a time when the world is getting crazier. I mean, it's, it's sort of a chicken and egg, you know, um, but it's certainly not helping anything that we don't have more therapists, more mental health professionals doing more intensive kinds of treatment. So take it away. What do you think about all this? Yeah, I think philosophically, I, I'm I'm in agreement with what you're saying. So you know, even even when I trained, um, you know, which was like in '95 to '99, it was sort of interesting to me how the year the year ahead of me um, at McLean Hospital at Harvard's premier psychiatric program, 
the year ahead of me, uh, most of the people decided that they wanted to boycott their psychotherapy didactics because they, they were not data-driven. And mm. so they said they didn't, they didn't want to be exposed to non-data-driven oh, ideas, wow. that, that these narratives were useless and that they wanted to be taught things that were part of the scientific tradition, and that's why they went to medical school. Huh. Um, I did sort of the opposite of that. So when I went, I went, not only did I go to all the didactics, but they had an optional didactic, which was called Great Concepts, because they were in some ways forced to remove some of the major theoretical constructs around Freud and Jung and Sullivan and uh, you know, a lot of the great thinkers. And so what they decided to do was to do a two-year course where we could explore the theories of each of these great thinkers psychodynamically, and it was optional. So I, I actually did it for one year and then taught it the next, I co-taught it the next year, and I think I just got a lot out of it because what it did was, it, you know, like it's absurd to me that people would not think that, that human psychology has a subjective component. I mean, there's, firstly, there's a lot of research to show that. Uh, secondly, it's absurd to me that a psychopharmacologist might not get a lot of value from understanding that the human condition is more complex um, than, than we think it is. And, and thirdly, it's, it's absurd. You know, one of the reasons I eventually left my clinic practice was because the demands for doing five-minute and ten-minute visits just grew out of control. So I stayed there for as long as anybody could tolerate it. And then I just said, this is absurd. I cannot see people for 15 minutes once a month. Uh, just because you think their panic disorder is a, is sweating, trembling, unsteadiness, you know, a bunch of different symptoms, and we can take it away with Clonopin. I remember when I ran the anxiety disorder service, I remember thinking to myself, this is not going to be that hard. I mean, of, of a lot of the things that we treat, you know, some of the benzodiazepines are really helpful, some of the SSRIs are helpful, but within a very short period of time, I, I, I was in another existential conflict because I would meet people who were often at the nexus of, uh, in their lives, where they, they were trying to make a, a big leap to the next phase of their lives. And even though I might have been decreasing their anxiety with the medication, I was also taking away their motivation to make the next transition mm. in life. And mm-hmm. it didn't take me a long time to recognize that I had to be intelligent about how I was using these medications, and I was very fortunate at the time to have teachers who are quite rare. Ross Baldessarini, who is somebody who wrote you know, some of the biggest textbooks in psychopharmacology, when I would present to him, and because you know, I, I did a lot of biological research and I had a decent understanding of receptors, you know, when, I, when I would come to the medication portion, and he was on the psychopharmacology service, he would say, Dr. Polly, would you present the case? And he'd be happy with the whole case, and when I'd say medications, he would say, excuse me, what was that? And I would say medications. He said, do you know how these drugs work? And I would say, oh, yes, it blocks the reuptake of serotonin. And I might even add an additional fact. But those receptors uh, are not really responsible because it's the second messengers that are doing something. Mm. And he would say, Dr. Pillay, do we know how these medications work? And I would say, no, we don't. He said, well, in future, when you're presenting that section of the history, could you please call them toxins? Could you please what? Call them toxins? Call them toxins. He would say, and I was like, that was so unusual for a psychopharmacologist. Yes. But, but, you know, what he said to me was, you are only going to be as good a doctor as as you, uh, you you will only be as good as the depth of your understanding about the unknown. Because he said, 
the worst doctors in our field are going to assume that whatever the insurance companies are dictating is the way you should be practicing medicine. Mm-hmm. And that might be the financial reality in our world, but you have the opportunity not to do that. So I would recommend that you think about this more deeply. Hmm. So I, you know, I just feel like it was, I was very fortunate to have had teachers in psychopharmacology who were like that. And like you, you know, I, I'm, I'm not against, I, I also medicate patients. Most of my appointments uh, are like probably over 95% of them are um, a, a long-term therapy. Um, and, you know, I, I, think, I think I feel very fortunate to be in a position where I can help people think more deeply about their lives and make meaningful changes rather than just pretend that, that it's, all it is is medications and cognition. You know, if there is, if symptoms are out of control, of course I'll use the medication if it can be helpful to them. But I will also alert them to the fact that even though we have an entire list of side effects and we have an entire list of effects, that there's much more that we do not know in a very mm-hmm. similar way to psychodynamic work. So, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, psychiatry, firstly, at its basis, uh, you know, we have zero studies on the validity of any psychiatric diagnosis from a scientific standpoint. Mm-hmm. We have lots of studies on reliability. Like, I can diagnose depression here. You can diagnose depression in California, and we'd probably both be able to make an accurate diagnosis. But in terms of a tissue diagnosis where I'm looking at streptococcus pneumonia causing an actual pneumonia with inflammation, we don't have that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's bizarre that we can, we can be a sub-discipline of medicine where validity is just not part of the construct, yet we ignore that and we say, okay, let's ignore the fact that we have no tissue diagnosis. Now let's pretend that we have medications that target things, and that's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, just, it's an absurd argument. So I, I, I generally think that it's important to include everybody in these kinds of discussions. And in fact, I'm, you can, I think you can tell from the way I speak, I feel very passionately about a lot of things. But one of the things I, I feel really passionately about is that we, we really don't have enough of a platform for meaningful and rich discussions that can remind us of the other side. And I feel like because the field is so dominated by this kind of reductionistic thinking in psychiatry, we, it, it's hard for anybody to have a voice. You know, in some ways, uh, psychodynamic, uh, people who work psychodynamically or psychoanalysts have their own society so that they can talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but why that should be marginalized is absurd. And there are people like Glenn Gabbard, for example, who've shown, and, and Peter Fonagy, uh, you know, both of whom are, are researchers in psychodynamic therapy, who have actually shown that there, are, that there is efficacy for, for short-term psychodynamic therapies. A lot of other researchers have shown efficacy for longer-term therapies. So it, there's some data that's, that's emerging, but even with that, I would say that the human condition, that medicine is a science and an art, that I would disagree with my colleagues who only wanted data, because then I don't think they should have done medicine. They should have just been in a lab. Mm-hmm, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I think the practice of clinical medicine is a science and an art. It is about addressing the objective symptoms that we see and also recognizing and working with subjectivity. And that the art of being a doctor involves interacting with the subjectivity, whether the patient has hypertension, cardiac disease, or stress. You know, if you actually look, Harvard has a 75-year-old study looking at predictors of death, you know, predictors Mm. of mortality. The, The number one variable is close relationships over and above cholesterol. 
So uh-huh. the, the, the study showed that you are more likely to die if you do not have close relationships, mm-hmm. more than if you had high cholesterol. So, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that we just say, oh, you know, what a, you know, I can imagine an insurance company saying, oh, you know, don't address the close relationship part. Just yes. address whether the cholesterol is high. Well, why? If the, if the close relationships more easily. Right. right. So I think we're obsessed. I, I, I think I have a tremendous love both objectively and aesthetically for what mathematics represents. But I think, again, I think a lot of the world has become distracted from what these things represent. Mathematical formulae and physical formulae are representations that can, that can help us deal with, with a subjective reality around us. They are just a, you know, a, a single extraction of this world. And I think so much human suffering is caused by, by oversimplifying who we are and not having the permission to explore who we are. And like you, you know, I think there are a lot of examples in the world where we see that, that where curiosity is cut off and exploration is cut off, we're doing ourselves a disservice, and I think we're doing our patients a disservice as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think I think you put that very well, and I think uh, and I I, I I did find it a little shocking what you were saying before about how uh, you know how people in the year ahead of you didn't really protest it against that. But you know what what I what's interesting is that it's more it's scarier. For people, especially psych residents, I remember we had a group. We had group therapy every year, and uh, people were right. dropping out because they had to be cajoled to come back because you know they were afraid to face things in themselves, afraid of being in in group therapy in themselves. Um, you know, to all the residents right. in each year. I don't know if you had that, but so so I yeah. think the same thing with. Um, Looking at psychodynamic psychotherapy, that, that's scarier to do than just learning about which pill, you know, the, the science of which pill is supposed to fix what. Um, and I think that's part of it, that people don't want to look into themselves and see their own, you know, their own motivations, their own uh, things, their own things from their, from their childhood and so on that scared them. Well, I know we're coming to the end of time here, our time, um, so uh, let me give out your website. Um, the it's www.drdrshrinipillay.com because I suggest that you uh, that you all go there and look at all of the. As I said at the beginning, he Dr. Pillay is a Renaissance man, and you will see all kinds of things that he is involved with as, as well as the book. Um, tinker, dabble, doodle, try. Uh, unlock the power of the unfocused mind, the unfocused mind. Um, and then you, you, I'm sure there'll be lots of other things to, that you will find interesting. Well, Dr. Pillay, this has been a delight, as I knew it would be. <laughs> and um, I look forward with, to chatting with you on some future occasions. And thank you very much for, uh, for being on the show today. Thank you so much. Well, the delight is definitely shared. It's, it's really lovely to hear somebody who still cares about the subjective nature of human existence within the context of healing. Um, and yeah, it's certainly a privilege for me to, to be in this conversation with you. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. 
Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.